Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morris and Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Welcome, everybody. This is Suze McCormick. I'm a partner here at MoFo, where I lead our ESG and social enterprise impact investing practices. And if you are joining either uh, on the day or after the day, as this will be recorded, you know that this is the 11th in our series on ESG influencers who are really leading transformative change. And this morning, I couldn't be more thrilled uh, to welcome Kate Gordon. Our topic this morning is really focusing on the just transitions how companies and investors can ensure both an equitable and a sustainable future. And when I came, when I started in this space, most investors and companies were either focused on people or planet, and there was a gulf between, and it's just not possible to do that for all kinds of, of historical reasons and current reasons in terms of how climate change is affecting um, particularly low-income communities, both in the United States and around the world. So thrilled to have Kate Gordon, who is recognized both in California and nationally and internationally as an expert in this area. She just completed a two-year appointment as the senior advisor to the U.S. Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, uh, where she focused on integrating just energy transition strategies into federal policy implementation and spending including being a real driver behind the historic IRA, as well as the Infrastructure Investment Acts. And she was really focused on the just transition provisions of those, which I know we're going to talk about today. Previously, she was appointed by Governor Gavin Newsom at the beginning of his first term to serve as the director of the Governor's Office of Planning and Research and senior advisor to the Governor on Climate. And while in this role, Gordon helped to launch the Community Economic Resilience Fund, the Climate Catalyst Fund, and she spearheaded the state's effort to better account for physical and transition risks from climate change. I'm going to turn it over to Aaron Kramer. As you all know, Aaron is the president and CEO of BSR that really is the gold standard in advising companies and investors on ESG issues, uh, was there long before it was called ESG. We'll be there leading companies long after possibly ESG is no longer a term. So I'm going to uh, turn it over to Aaron and Kate, and I'm just thrilled to have both of you here today. Thank you, Thank you Suze, and um, gratitude back at you for your leadership and MoFo's wide-ranging activities on this subject. It's great to have a law firm like MoFo in in our collective corner as we think about all of these topics. And the just transition is incredibly timely and incredibly important. I think for a long time, people considered the energy transition to be about molecules and electrons, and it certainly is that, but it is also about people and communities and economies and livelihoods. And so it gives me great pleasure to be able to have this dialogue with Kate Gordon. And so welcome, Kate. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Aaron. Great to see you again. Indeed. And let me start, as Suze described, you've had quite a career working in a wide range of institutions, a nice through line in terms of the nature of your work, but from so many different perspectives. And I think we even left out a few things that you've done that are really interesting. Tell us a little bit about your professional journey and how you came to work uh, on a just transition and the perspective of doing that from so many different kinds of institutions. Yeah, thanks, Aaron, and, and just thanks to you and Suze and Mofo for having me. Yeah, it is a funny set of things. I'm a so I'm a lawyer for those on who are lawyers. I am I went to UC Berkeley Law School and trained as a lawyer, but I also got a joint degree with city planning where I really focused on regional economic development. And that combination of things came from work I had done prior to law school. Uh, actually, as a community organizer, I was doing community organizing and tenant organizing in San Francisco really focusing on the impact that systems, in this case, the rental market and eviction laws systems had on people and drove me to go to law school. I thought I was going to become a tenant lawyer. <laughs> Ended up pretty quickly thinking about getting beyond the individual cases and towards a system, creating some of these situations. And so from that point, 
drove me to go to uh, the planning school. I did work as a tenant lawyer and then as an um, impact litigator for a few years, but ultimately really drove me towards thinking about systems change. And I could think about what I do in general as tactical systems change. I think the training as an organizer and a lawyer has given me a lot of background in starting where people are looking, learning the system and learning the current situation and then thinking about tactical approaches to really to change that or to address sort of systemic issues. And so just that's the through line from leaving being a lawyer. I went to work for the Center on Wisconsin Strategy or COWS at the University of Wisconsin, which is an institute focused on economic development. And they were just starting a project really tying economic development strategies together with clean energy development at the time, early 2000s. We were very, you might remember, we were very focused on domestic energy production. We were still importing natural gas, very different situation. And so we built up this organization that became the first green jobs organization in the United States. It was the, we developed the green jobs platforms for um, candidates, Obama, Clinton, Hillary Clinton, and John McCain uh, for the 2008 um, uh, election when everybody had a green jobs platform. Um, and uh, really my work at think tanks uh, has gone from there, just being very much focused on how are the, how do we think about this huge issue of climate change and the overall energy system transformation, how do we think about that really tactically in terms of um, specific places, specific economies, specific policies and politics? Uh, so that really is the through line. But again, it, it really is like thinking about systems change, but in a very tactical way. Well, for one a UC Berkeley trained lawyer to another, thank you for that Absolutely. story. And, and yes, I, I am, as they say, I'm old enough to remember when there was a TV ad with Newt Gingrich and Nancy Pelosi sitting on a couch with the Capitol Dome in the background talking about how they both, from very different political perspectives, felt that action on climate change was so essential and the global financial crisis put an end to that, unfortunately, yeah. uh, tragically even. So just picking up on one piece, you've been an advocate and you've been inside government. How do you see, how have you enjoyed those two roles and how do you see them as different or complementary? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Think tanks. I've been at several. I started again at, at COWS, went on to, we went on to form the Apollo Alliance, which was that first green jobs organization. Um, and then I went to Center on American Center for American Progress in DC, uh, Center for the Next Generation, which was Tom Steyer's first think tank that he built before Next Gen, and then uh, worked with Hank Paulson at his think tank. We can talk more about that. The difference between think tanks and advocacy organizations really, think tanks, I, I do feel are very, they're at a, sort of a next level up in a way. It's like very data-driven. You're aggregating a lot of other people's research and then much closer to policymakers, particularly Center for American Progress, which is described as the administration in waiting. It's in, in some ways a little like a shadow government kind of approach in the UK. And I, I really enjoyed that because you just get to meet amazing people and the amount of sort of expertise is really phenomenal, but you're able to take a position, right? Like you're coming in telling government, like, this is a better way to do the thing that you're trying to do. Also, a lot of work with the legislative process when I was in think tanks, both in California and nationally and a little bit in China, too, actually, through the Paulson Institute. Being in government, of course, on the, in, in the administrative, in the executive branch, you aren't making law. You're really, you're pretty much not in a position to lobby the legislature, right? Because there is a, a wall between those two things, but you really are in a position to think about the tactical implementation of those policies. And that was incredibly interesting. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating combination of dealing with fire drills, particularly from the governor's office, and then trying to move things forward as the fire drills are happening. And frankly, when I worked for Governor Newsom, um, I started with him at the very beginning of his first term we were coming off of the, the fire season of 2018, which was shocking fire season. And so much of what I did, and literally the first thing I did was run the Catastrophic Wildfire Commission. So it's it was a lot of response, but then you thinking about that response and building toward resilience while thinking about that response. And I think that's really the difference, but I, both of them are just, I was so honored to do both those role, all those roles, because it's it's really interesting to get to see all the different pieces. And I want to pivot because now, because you have your fingers on one of the most significant pieces of legislation to come out of the United States Congress 
in decades, in my view, the Inflation Reduction Act, which has been a, a game changer, a catalyst, and quite honestly, reason for hope for many of us who want to see policy frameworks that support strong action by the private sector so that we really do shift the economy in ways that, that benefit everybody. So let's talk a little bit about that. So tell us about your role in shaping the IRA, because you, you, you did play a particular role um, that is directly linked to a just energy transition. Yeah, thank you. First, I always feel like I have to say, I do think the IRA can't be looked at in isolation. I really do think we have to look at the package of bills, the infrastructure bill, and then Chips and Science Act, and then the IRA. And the reason I say that is that the president laid out a very clear kind of modern industrial strategy at the beginning of his administration, where he said, we're coming out of COVID. We just saw what happens when there's economic shocks to our supply chain. We're seeing what's happened with conflicts, frankly, with the Russia-Ukraine invasion. In particular, those shocks to the supply chain are something we need to build up our resilience in the face of this. And that was in some ways the way in. He did this executive order on supply chains. And if you look at it, it's all about energy and climate, right? The executive order in supply chains is about semiconductors because they're a major input into all of our EVs and our solar panels and our clean energy technology. It's about critical minerals, which are a key part of the supply chain to all the clean energy activities. They're about battery, advanced batteries. It's a very, it is, a, it's an executive order about climate and energy, but it's framed in this sort of, the U.S. needs to build a more resilient economy. And I think that's actually really important because it's why two of those three bills were bipartisan. <laughs> and that's pretty amazing that he did that, was able to do that. Infrastructure bill, really foundational infrastructure, including transmission, EV charging, and then also major investments in these emerging technologies of hydrogen, direct air capture, small modular reactors for nuclear, then chips and science, huge investment in semiconductors, as well as in basic R&D. And then you get IRA, which is really, the secretary always said, the lungs, breathing air into all of these things, driving that private sector investment, as you said. So I think that framing was really important. And frankly, I, of course, didn't, not being in Congress, didn't work on the bills themselves, did do some technical assistance on them, um, particularly around the definition of energy communities, which is one of the tax adders. We can talk about that. That's a direct just transition piece of IRA. But this framing is frankly like what I've been working on my whole career, right? It's it's the 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 culmination of a lot of work by a lot of people to say, look, if we are transitioning to meet the climate challenge, that is a fundamental shift of the entire economy. It's not some niche set of green jobs over here. It's not some like one set of industries. It really is a fundamental re making of both the basic infrastructure and where we focus innovation and where we focus research. So I think it it points to that. And then does it, and this sort of a hallmark of this administration, in a way that's very focused on people and places, not just what is the best widget at the best cost, uh, which is how we thought about clean energy, I think, in some prior policy iterations, but more how does this work in places? Where does it work best? What are the ways we can build on our existing assets, our existing infrastructure and our existing strength? Um, and that's really where the just transition piece comes in. I think you're 100% right. If you compare it to the other landmark piece of legislation we've seen over the last 15 years, the Affordable Care Act, yeah. uh, arguably it sounds odd to say it, but the Affordable Care Act, as significant as it is, pales in comparison to the IRA and the, and the suite of policies, because you're right, it affects every corner of, of the economy at a time when a massive shift on the order of the Industrial Revolution is, or hopefully is, uh, taking place. Now, you did work on, on specific community aspects of the IRA. Tell us a little bit about that, um, why the administration felt it was so important, and, and what you think is so significant about it. Yeah, I mean, it, I think what the administration and certainly the secretary have really focused on is as we do this economic, and Congress, of course, as we do this economic transformation, that's going to, there are two sets of people, two sets of communities that we have to pay particular attention to in that transition for economic, for political, for moral reasons. One is the set of people that really drove the 
the industrial economy. Our industrial economy is built on fossil fuels. The industrial revolution was built on fossil fuels. The people doing that extraction and production of fossil fuels in those communities that are extractive communities really did drive the industrial revolution and actually really drove our participation in World War II, the whole kind of era of broadly shared prosperity after the, in the post-war era. That was mostly coal communities, to be totally honest. And our geopolitical, our, our role in the world is in large part has to do with our oil and gas position. So those communities, as we transition from fossil fuels, we need to bring those communities along because otherwise we risk them becoming left behind disadvantaged communities that become really have to become a new area of focus. The other, though, set of communities are those that never got to participate in the first place. <laughs> those that were left out because of systemic racism, because of redlining, because of immigration policies, a number of reasons. So really, that's where you see the sort of combination. And both these communities are called out in the climate executive order. That was the president's first executive order on climate. He calls out and creates both the interagency working group on coal and power plant communities, on which is a transition community piece and Justice 40, which is um, really focused on benefits for historically left behind communities. And I think that's really important, that through line in the infrastructure bill in IRA with additional tax credits in IRA for both low-income communities and these energy communities, it really comes through. Well, and what's interesting is, I understand it, a lot of the funding and incentives that come from the IRA have, have flowed to districts represented by members of Congress who did not vote for the IRA. And I think that speaks to the desire, as I, again, as I understand it, to have the benefits be shared across the entire economy, include regardless of red state, blue state, because there are people who maybe didn't like the IRA, but who absolutely benefit from the provisions. A hundred percent. This is really it, it, just to be macroeconomic about it for a second. This is really a shift away from a neoliberal kind of approach to economics, which said for decades, as long as there's this global frictionless economy where everybody trades everything, we can buy cheap stuff. And it doesn't really matter what's made here because everyone can buy cheap stuff at Walmart or whatever. And, and we're going to keep wages low. People can still buy cheap things. That's what matters. And I think we really are moving into an economy where there's a recognition that broadly shared prosperity is critical to America's kind of security position um, to our moral position, it's really a, a big shift, frankly. And so absolutely, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing a recognition that every community needs to see themselves in this transition. And now that I'm not in government, I'll just talk about the politics of that too. It's critical to do that because otherwise you leave behind large swaths of the American voting public. So I think you're right. A lot of these benefits are being seen in red states that I often tell this story, but I, one of the last things I did when I was in, in government was to go to this Wyoming federal funding summit where the governor and both senators had hosted, they created this federal funding summit, brought a bunch of us from the agencies to Wyoming to talk about the benefits of the infrastructure bill in IRA, neither of which either senator voted for. And this is why I get asked all the time, are you worried it's going to get overturned? And this is why I'm not worried it's going to get overturned, because I actually think those benefits are becoming clearer and clearer to people on the ground. It's extremely hard for people to vote against the economic interests of their constituents. Look at, again, the analogy of the Affordable Care Act, which has grown more popular exactly. over time. Yep. Um, you, you made an interesting point I want to underline a bit, the shift in our macroeconomic situation and the political economy in the world, because the post-Cold War era faded, arguably, you could say maybe in 2008, but I think certainly in the mid to late 2010s. And there was a great piece in the Washington Post, I think just today, from Rana Forahar, who, who writes for the Financial Times. And her thesis is the era of cheap is over. Cheap capital is gone. Cheap labor is going away. Cheap energy is fading and cheap goods and services are, are all uh, consumer goods also fading. And it is a very significant shift. And I think that's one of the reasons why we see so much political turbulence, because the, the not only the shift, the, the energy transition, but some of the core tenets of our, our global economy 
look very different in the lens of 2023 than they have for some time. Okay, let's- I think that's right. And there is, and actually the Pope just talked about this in his most recent circular, there is a significant connection between the era of cheap and and increasing emissions. Like we have become very focused on very cheap, mostly plastic, moving all around the world goods. And so I think that's important as well to start thinking about that as part of our climate response as well. And it's the subject of another webinar, but I think it's illusory to think that actually it's been cheap because, of course, we've externalized health costs, environmental costs, labor conditions, and those are all things that we end up paying for one way or the other. Yeah. Okay. One last thing I'll say on this, Aaron, but it is another, it's a whole conversation, but I really do subscribe. I recognize there were a lot of problems with Henry Ford, but I do subscribe to his feeling that you need to pay people enough to, to buy the things you're they're making. And I think that to me is fundamental. We need to, everything can't be about the cost of the goods. You have to actually think about raising the whole floor so that we have much more broadly shared ability to be part of the clean energy economy. Because otherwise, again, you lose politically, you lose economically, we lose the climate battle. There, you're right. There will be no, I mean, you said it earlier, people have to see themselves in it. If that doesn't exist, we won't have the energy transition that we need. So it's a, it, it, there's a virtuous circle to be had, and there's also a little bit of a doom loop uh, that, that we risk. Um, so let's talk about just transition. And it's a term that is happily used a great deal more often these days than it had been in the past. We first met when Governor Brown in California was creating the Global Climate Action Summit and we at BSR were tasked with generating the programming on the just transition and it was incredibly hard. No companies really wanted to talk about it. That's changed, that's great. I'm not sure people really have a clear and consistent understanding of what the term just transition means. So let's go to first principles. How would you define it? So I would define just transition as the ensuring that a transition from one type of economy to another is done in a way that is sustainable, is resilient, and is equitable. The term really actually originated with organized labor. So the term originated as a term used for like with factory closures. We've had transitions forever, right? Anytime you have a big shift in the economy from horses to cars was a transition. Anytime you run out of a natural resource and the mine closes or the plant closes or anytime the industrial plant closes. So the labor movement really started this term around unionized plant closures, mostly in the Midwest and either the offshoring or the move to non-union states. And they used it to say, how do we ensure that this transition works for workers in particular for union workers? I think where it's evolved since that time, and this is really how we thought about it at the Department of Energy, where we did a lot of work on this, it's evolved to mean, how do we make sure it works for workers and communities? I think going beyond the individual workers in the individual plant and toward broader metrics around things like both the tax base of the overall community, for instance, which goes beyond the workers, but still economic, but also the environmental impacts of that transition. For instance, if you have a mine closure and no one does remediation, how do you think about the just transition has to include remediation and reclamation along with sort of an economic transition. So I think it's broadened or it should be broader. Most of the world sees it this way. If you go to the COPS, if you go to uh, the ILO, the International Labor Organization, This is how people talk about just transition. The UK Declaration on Just Transition, which we signed as a government at the COP in Glasgow, I would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is really how it's defined. I do think it's a little contested in the United States at this point because it's been taken on as a term to mean a lot of different pieces of what I just said. So I just, I'm out there advocating all the time. Let's keep it broad, people and communities. Like people and places need to be see this as equitable, sustainable, and resilient. That is that is where I am on this. That's great. Let me test with you a couple of things that sometimes are talked about. Do you consider them to be part of it? So let's start with access to energy. We can talk about health equity as it relates to climate. 
We can talk about supply chains, whether for critical minerals or other goods that are needed for the clean energy economy. Do you include those things as well in the just transition? Yeah, I think, I guess I would say critical minerals and supply chain in some ways are, I would say, as we are thinking about the need to shore up our domestic supply chain, that should be done in a way that ensures a just transition. So I think it's a little bit more, it's a frame that you need to apply every time there's some kind of economic activity. For sure, energy access, there is no economy in a place without energy access. One of the reasons I always put broadband into my description of why the infrastructure bill is about the transition is that increased access to broadband is actually critical to these communities as is increased access to energy. Like you actually need these foundational infrastructure pieces to build anything on top of it, to have any likelihood of having an economy that works for people. But yeah, I would put those things in, the, in that category for sure. Let's switch a little bit because a lot of the people dialing in today, do we still say dialing in? Probably not. A lot of people joining the Zoom joining today. Us. <laughs> yeah, joining us. Zooming um, in, I think. Zooming, zooming in, that's, right. that's good. Um, <laughs> watching us, et cetera, not dialing in. There's no dials. Um, are from businesses. So how should companies think about the just transition? Because a lot of them are saying, yes, we, we, we get it. We embrace the concept, but then you've got to figure out, okay, so what, what, what do we do? So what advice do you have for companies to help them think about what they can do? And, and we're working with a lot of companies on this. And I think, yeah. I, I think there's still a need to bring it down to something practical that companies can implement. I think that's right. I think that about everything, right? I think that about ESG. Like you can't, yeah. these broad kind of vague terms are not helpful unless they're core, they're part of your core business strategy. I'm not a fan of talking about these issues as if they're nice to have, put them over there in your community program. I actually think ensuring that the projects that you're doing and the investments you're making are actually creating this kind of these community benefits, frankly, and worker benefits is central to project viability at this point. I This is why I was involved, one of the leaders at the Department of Energy on creating the community benefits plan approach in the infrastructure bill and IRA implementation. What we did with that was to say, look, companies, you are coming to us in a competitive grant process or a loan per process looking for significant dollars to do a thing that thing is going to have a major impact on the place it goes. The hydrogen hubs are a perfect example of this. Those are massive projects. They will become economic drivers in the places where they are now going to be located. We asked companies and we scored this at 20% of their applications, which is the first ever thing that we did at DOE. We asked companies to tell us their community benefits plan. And honestly, it's, a, it's a, another way of saying just transition. Those plans needed to include descriptions of where's your workforce coming from? How are you ensuring that they're skilled? How are you ensuring that they're paid appropriately for the industry in a way that's competitive so you can keep them, frankly? How are you ensuring that, what are you doing about the benefits to communities on the environmental side and economic side and the potential harms? How are you mitigating harms? We didn't see that as a kind of, as Recline would call it, the everything bagel, right? For us, it wasn't like some side issue. It really is Look, we are seeing permitting and siting challenges and litigation risks from companies that aren't doing this, from companies that aren't paying attention to the communities they're going into, the workers that they're going to be employing, the pipelines, et cetera, and, and their suppliers. If you're not paying attention to that stuff, you're not competitive in the US, in the US economy. The US economy will never be competitive by driving down wages and driving down environmental benefits. We will always be competitive by being better and what we call high road by having skilled labor, by having more innovation, by having more, being more nimble, by being more uh, uh, focused on these issues. So we really see it as like a kind of bottom line business risk issue. And I think businesses should be looking at it that way as well. Frankly, that's how companies in the extraction spaces have been focused for a long time. And you can't really do extraction in this country, whether you're doing oil and gas, whether you're doing mining without paying a lot of attention to these issues. And I think that's worth paying it, worth us focusing on. We've got to focus on, on really creating this broadly shared benefits because otherwise your project's not happening. That's the most succinct argument you can possibly make. And I think it's <laughs> right. And companies 
who were involved in nickel mines in Indonesia, copper mines in Peru, yeah. all of the work in the DRC, and and yes, in in Arizona, in Minnesota, is one of the largest copper projects in the United States. Didn't happen in Minnesota because of environmental and and Native American concerns. Companies face very direct economic risk if not doing it. The flip side of that is the benefits are huge to getting these things right. As you say, it can be the difference between a go and a no-go decision on some very large and important projects that companies want because of the economic uh, benefits, but that the economy needs because of what it can instigate. I think that's right. And I also think on the worker side, there are Example after example of projects where uh, companies tried to try to cut costs on the labor side with workers that weren't as skilled and frankly had real problems later on with the quality of the project. Solar project, there's a number of solar projects that have actually failed as a result of having not skilled, not having a skilled labor as well as built. You can see this in the building space and other spaces. So I, I think there's a real benefit to having those conversations early. I also think um, you mentioned the Native American piece, and I was just reading a statistic that something like 85% of all critical mineral mining in the United States is within 30 miles of, of a reservation or of a Native American land. That's pretty interesting, or it's on that land, right? That's pretty interesting because that's true, even more true in Canada. And I think we can really look to Canada for um, decades of doing this really collaborative work with the First Nations community up there. I love the First Nations Major Projects Coalition, which is a coalition of of First Nations that includes finance professionals and legal professionals who actually negotiate these land deals with companies and end up getting a share of equity in the project. And I think companies need to be creative about this stuff. Think about that. Think about actual equity sharing with communities and with tribes. Think about actual creating a community benefits fund that's um, overseen by a kind of an oversight board. These are the kinds of things we need to be thinking about. This is a new era for the private sector. Yeah. And um, if I saw the news correctly today, I think Justin Trudeau announced uh, a coalition, a further coalition today to promote the same kind of uh, benefit sharing that you're speaking about. And so, uh, and, and look, I think one of the things that frustrates companies a lot is some version of NIMBY and people don't always love these projects. And we've also seen lots of examples of people who are loud advocates for climate action on the one hand, but don't want to see the the offshore wind from their, their home in Cape Cod, just to choose one example. Yep. And so this is the barrier that companies have to transcend. And it's very hard in today's world to ram this through without some form of dialogue and engagement and partnership. I think that's right. And the other thing I would say to companies, and it actually is a through line in all the bills I talked about as well, uh, we have an entire existing industrial infrastructure in this country. Think about repurposing and reusing that infrastructure. And that goes all the way from manufacturing plants, repurposing coal plants, repurposing oil fields, repurposing oil platforms, thinking about critical mineral mining out of things like coal ash. There, There isn't, we don't need to build a new industrial infrastructure in green fields. In this country, we actually have a lot of industrial land. And the reason I'm pointing to that is, A, there's a ton of incentives to do that. Um, IRA includes a new loan program, uh, which is $250 billion in loan authority that's specifically intended for repurposing existing energy infrastructure. There are very cool things you can do. There's a program in the infrastructure bill to do clean energy projects on mine lands, on current or abandoned mine lands. Lots you can do with existing, but also... There's real advantages from a business perspective to doing that. If you're repurposing a coal plant, you have automatically, you already have interconnection, which is probably the single hardest thing for people right now. You have interconnection, you have water rights in most cases, you have a transportation system in most cases, built in rail or road, and you've got a workforce that's trained that live within commuting distance. Thinking about that strategically, I think it's in the US in particular, because we have so much land, the MO of companies tends to be, oh, I don't want to deal with people. I don't want to deal with, with like re- reclamation. I'm just going to go to some greenfield site. I'm just here to say your project will be easier if you go with existing industry because you're not going to face as much opposition uh, from the environmental community and you will have all those built-in advantages. 
Let me ask you a question um, about the intersection of business and public policy, because um, a lot of companies stood up to say the United States should not withdraw from um, the Paris Agreement. That was great. Um, that said, a, a lot of companies also were a little skittish about the IRA and so on, partly due to taxes and, and tax trade and regulation, the, the Holy Trinity. From your time in government, whether in Washington or Sacramento, what do you want to see from the business community in terms of engaging in the policy process? And, and what would you like to see change on that front? Yeah, I think Paris and, and Aaron, you and BSR were part of this. So thank you for that. Really did change the game in terms of sort of the level of private sector engagement on policy at the global level. Those at that time, that private sector kind of piling on to commitments and particularly in the in the 2016 election when there was a lot of worry globally about lack of commitment to these goals having the private sector come in and say look we are multinational we are going to be consistent in our in our commitments to to Paris that was super super important so i think the goal setting is really important i do think we're now in a in an era of implementation i think we now have to do these projects and show that they can work. Because one of the challenges with the Paris Agreement, with all of the commitments you can name, the net zero commitments, is they're voluntary. And ultimately, them being voluntary makes them volatile. It means that with political change, with changes in, we're seeing this right now with the number of the big oil majors, right? With changes in the price of the commodity, with conflict, whatever, people will change their approach. And so I just think let's really ground this next era of implementation in core business strategy, moving from the sustainability director office to the CEO, right? Moving to uh, actual disclosure of financial risk. California, of course, just passed these two significant bills on climate risk disclosure. Um, that's going to push the federal conversation uh, on climate risk disclosure because those bills cover so many companies because uh, everyone does business in California. So. I think like it's starting to incorporate these things as material risk, as part of the risk committee's calculation, as part of every capital stock, stock turnover decision, every expansion decision, every trade decision. That's when it becomes real and consistent. And frankly, that's when your lobbyists are going to talk about it to their members of Congress, because what we've heard for years is that even though companies are out there saying climate's important to them, they're not talking about it in to, their lobbyists are not talking about it. It's not the one, two or three issue. Let's make it the one, two or three issue. I want to, I've got a few more questions for you, but I want to say to the audience, we'd love to hear your questions. You can pop them into the Q and A in the zoom and we'll leave some time towards the end uh, to take some questions. Um, I want to build off your last comment about what companies say and don't say. There's so much attention to greenwashing and green hushing right now. Yeah. From your perspective, how I think there's a gen, look, there, there's some statements that have no basis. We don't want that. But there's also a tricky balance for companies between making aspirational statements about where they want to go, which may be made in good faith. And it, for my money, we want that aspiration. How can companies stay on the right line so that they're not getting their words aren't getting too far out ahead of their actions? How do you think about that? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I agree with you. I think aspirational statements, both from business and government, play a really important role. Um, their direction setting, their, as everyone knows, uh, CEOs don't stick around for that long. So the kinds of direction setting we're talking about transcend CEO or elected official. So it is actually really important to have something that's farther, that's a longer term goal that's baked in some way. I tend to go back to the kind of the, T the task force on climate related financial disclosure, TCFD approach, which is uh, then how to make that credible is to first of all, say, be honest, the changing conditions change situations. They do all the time. Look, when I started in this world, you did, and we were doing all the domestic production, like that was the driver, all these people, bipartisan focus on clean energy. What happened? Fracking fracking happened. We did not expect that to happen. It changed the entire conversation about energy in this country and globally. So conditions change. Companies have to be responsive to changing conditions, so do government. So I think it's worth saying that, honestly. My number one thing is be honest, right? Be honest. 
this is where we want to go directionally. Here are ways that we are aligning to get there. Here are the benchmarks we're going to try to look at, and we are going to continually evaluate. I think that's really important, continual evaluation toward that goal. But just be honest that things change. Um, and they should change because we're going to innovate. So I think that's super important. And then that benchmarking piece is really important. I guess in the global context, we call it stock taking, right? The problem with stock taking in the voluntary agreement context is no one is meeting their goals of the Paris Agreement. And that's what the answer is going to be in stock taking. I think for companies, it's incumbent on companies to actually really think about, oh, we're not meeting the goal. Let's dig in on why. What is direction? Where are the barriers? What is changing our direction? Like, how should we be shifting maybe our attention from our buildings footprint to our transportation footprint? Like, how do you think about those things? strategically. And I think companies should be have a set of people that are consistent in the governance structures that think about that and should be held accountable to it. Suze McCormick, our friend, has done phenomenal work on helping change corporate forms so that boards are actually accountable to these kinds of mission statements and metrics. I think that's just really important because we have to change the system in order to make this change. I'm glad you mentioned boards. We've been pleased and, and frankly, to some degree, astonished at the rapid uptake by boards who recognize the importance of these subjects and are candid enough to recognize that they need to upskill, frankly, in order to manage this. I want to go back. You mentioned some of the uh, two, two laws that came out of California requiring reporting and disclosure on climate, including scope three emissions, importantly. Yep and also adoption of the TCFD framework, which you mentioned. So you've been in both the federal government and state government. What's your crystal ball say about the meaning of the bills that Governor Newsom signed and what we might get from the SEC at some point on the same topic? Yeah, thanks for, I think these bills are in everyone's mind. So the bill 253, I think, by Scott Wiener really does, as you said, scope one, two, and three disclosure for companies over, I want to say a billion dollars, doing more than a billion dollars of business in California. So that's really important. That is a lot of companies. And then the Henry Stearns Bill 261 is, is really climate risk disclosure for companies over 500 million. So in some ways, it's the physical risk bill and the transition risk bill, if you are in the TCFD mindset, which I always am. And I'll just say, I, I worked uh, quite closely with Senator Stern over many years. The, the risky business project that I spearheaded with Mike Bloomberg, Tom Steyer, and Hank Paulson was one of the inspirations for that bill. So I'm really excited that happened. They are a big deal. They're a really big deal. I think in doing business in California, if you don't pay attention to physical climate risk, you are going to lose your shirt. Oh, it is a that's dumb right. thing to not pay attention yeah. to physical climate risk, not just in California, but in California for sure. So I, this is like a fundamental, like everybody should have been doing this anyway. So I'm really glad they're now having to do it. Scope one, two, and three is going to be interesting. I think the fact that bill was signed is going to usher in a conversation about scope three. And this kind of goes to your earlier point, like scope three was designed in some ways by the advocacy community. It's the point of scope three is to get at economy-wide emissions reporting. There's a lot of double and triple and quadruple counting of emissions under scope three. If I'm McKinsey and everybody flies everywhere, I count that in my scope three, but then it's also in the scope two of the airline company. It's also in a scope of the fuel company. Like everyone's counting that in different places. So I think we're going to, this is going to usher in a serious conversation about how to actually move to a structure that allows for investors to judge companies against each other, like to move to a structure that where companies have some control over what they're reporting, and then they can actually be evaluated on it. That's going to be a very interesting conversation. There's a reason that they delayed the scope three piece of that bill in order to have that conversation. So I'm watching it with a lot of interest. I'm frankly watching all of the new work being done on carbon accounting structures with a lot of interest, because I think we're going to have to get from this advocacy theory to a real business theory on scope three. This speeds up that timeline to do that. I, I think it also pushes the SEC. I think it pushes the SEC to go faster because what everybody now wants is to have some consistency and not 50 different state approaches to how to deal with disclosure. Um, it will drive everybody completely mad if that happens. We'll let, it, not good for business. 
let alone structures from the ISSB and, and the yeah. EU and, and so on. We actually if have I a was, question. If I was just really quickly to prognosticate, I would say I think it pushes SEC on scope one and two to do something much faster. I think scope three is an open question. Honestly. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's probably a, an accurate assessment. Um, we have a question from the audience actually related to these two bills. Do you foresee any changes to them either legislatively or through the regulatory process in 2024? Um, it, in 2024. I'm trying to figure out if that's a political question. I, I think it. I, I think it's not. I think it's with the existing legislature and regulatory agencies. There's just as we've seen in Europe. There, there was some in the implementation. There, there's been a lot of vigorous debate. I, I think there will be vigorous debate around scope three. Yeah. So two things: if the SEC comes out with something, there's obviously always a preemption question. If the SEC yeah. comes out with a framework. Yeah. At the federal level, there's going to be a conversation about whether that preempts the state framework or not. And I, when I was a lawyer, I worked on preemption quite a lot. And I think that there's an argument that an SEC framework would preempt uh, pieces of this. So there's a question. So it might change based on preemption. I think scope three, again, uh, it's the legislature put it in there at a high level. I think how that gets implemented might look very different than what people are thinking scope three looks like today. Yes, I could see a change on that. We'll have you back a year from now and see how things have settled. <laughs> it, I'm really interested, actually. I think it'll be really, whenever you go from, to your earlier conversation, like whenever you go from an aspirational goal to implementation, it's always like the sausage making is always fascinating. Well, and, and look, the, how fast did we see net zero go from an idea of the on the fringes for companies to something where everyone was embracing a net zero target to a lot of people saying, well, wait a minute, we're not even sure what this means. We're not sure how to measure it. And, and so there's so much that's new here. I mean, this is the challenge for regulators on all of it. There's so much that's new. Regulation often works best in very settled and somewhat static environments. That is not what we're living through right now. Yeah, no, you're right. And look, fundamentally, all the work on policy happens in implementation. So it really is those experts. Interesting that it was CARB that was put in charge of this. I think that'll be interesting. The California Air Resources Board, they're going to need a lot of kind of, I think, new muscle, just like the EPA is building new muscle around the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. I think we're going to see the same thing. The other space I'd watch, because you brought up net zero, is carbon removal. I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see a real attempt to figure out how to value a removed ton of carbon in the carbon accounting systems that we're developing. So that's another you, place I'd watch. Are, do you see carbon removal getting real scale? I do. I think it's 100% dependent on whether there's a consistent market for it. So it's not a technology problem. It's a market problem. The technology is pretty well developed, actually. We have a pretty good sense of how it works. The reason that the technology is still mostly used for enhanced oil recovery and for selling carbon dioxide to beverage companies is because those are markets that have value that people get paid for. So right now, the only market for carbon removal, really, there's a little bit of a policy market, but the only real market is this voluntary market that Stripe and others created. And that's great and it has spurred a ton of innovation. It's been great, but it's it's not consistent. Is there going to be a market? I think that goes back to, can this get integrated into existing cap and trade systems um, and other accounting systems? And that's a place I would definitely keep watch on that. We got some more questions. Let me ask you one more and ask for... If, if possible, a, a concise answer, and then I've got a, a closing question for you. So what sort of harmonization do you see coming on reporting and disclosure, looking at it globally? Oh, that's a, I don't know, honestly. One of the things, we don't really have a, I would argue, a great global governance structure to figure this out. To be sure. But all these companies are multinational, so, so they are, in effect, their own governance structures. So I just don't know. We have to get to harmonization. That's a, this is a place I think companies actually need to be continually pushing because we, we have to get there. And I think it needs to be made really clear to policymakers the impact of not of an inconsistent structure. All right. Let me ask you a question that may be unanswerable, but I'm, I'm going to ask it anyway. The world, you may have noticed, is going through an immense amount of dislocation economically, 
politically, culturally, technologically, there's a lot of conflict in the world, is how would you value the risk of that driving down progress on climate? Or do you see climate as a pathway, perhaps to building more global cooperation that in the best world might spill over into some of the other things that are out there? Oh, it's a... I, I play, mean, look, play it's, funded for me for a minute. It's, it's very, they're very related. So first, let me just say, climate impacts drive conflict, drives climate change. So it's a circle, right? Extreme heat, resource depletion, all these things drive conflict. Um, that conflict then, if it creates military action, is super carbon intensive. So then that in turn drives climate change. So these, that's, it's really important to think about conflict in the, in the, um, in the world of climate, it also drives, just as an example, Exxon buying the American, the stake in American shale is a direct result of the Russia-Ukraine situation because of the U.S. having suddenly this role of supplying Europe with more gas. So Exxon sees that as a consistent market because they're doing war games and they see this as ongoing conflict. Like that's what they're seeing. So I think that's the bad side is like this worries me a lot for a lot of reasons, humanitarian and from a climate perspective. However, I think Ultimately, what it should do is drive more climate action because one of the major fundamental reasons behind all of this conflict is the global fossil fuel system. Oil is a globally traded commodity. It is not, we don't control its price locally. Every single one of these conflicts that happens throws us all out of whack in terms of gas prices and oil prices. The Middle East conflict is doing that again. Getting to a place, again, just transition definition, where we are having a more sustainable and more resilient and more equitable economy, we have to get away from that system, which we do not control, and we are totally dependent on and is totally volatile. So I think there is a, you could see it driving us toward these like much more sustainable supply chains and systems and domestic production. Does that potentially push us into isolationism? Yes. So that's another thing we got to watch it, but it, the game has changed. The game has changed. So I think that's really important to watch. Kate Gordon, we could go on. This has been just fascinating. Your perspective is absolutely wonderful. And I really appreciate your joining us and I've really enjoyed it. So thank you very much. And let me now pass it back to Susan Cormick to close us out. Just quickly, thanks, Aaron. And thank you for you and BSR's work in this space, which has been really important. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like I'm the fangirl coming in. Uh, thank you, Aaron, for leading the discussion and Kate for your invaluable insights as we navigate what is a very difficult time for, I think, everyone around the world. But yeah, I, I feel like the more we understand the implications of the transition on all communities and then factor that into finance, decision-making, policy, law, uh, the better we're all going to be in the decade ahead. So thank you for all of your efforts. And again, thanks to Aaron, my partner at BSR. And yeah, it's so funny. I, yes, I teach at Berkeley. Kate came to help teach my class on climate governance. And it's just, it is the thing that I hold in my heart is that there are generations of people who are coming up who are thinking about these issues and I think really able to affect change. So on that note, please stay tuned. Uh, we will be back uh, next month with the 12th in this series and uh, we look forward to seeing you all then. Thanks so much. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.